starting with student transformation is super important because this is the lens that your prospective students are going to view you and your course through. So they are going to be asking themselves, what will I gain from taking this course? What will I learn? How is this going to solve my problems? So you really want to focus on student transformation because it refocuses and recenters you as a creator to focus purely on your student. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. There's a disconnect between what we learn in traditional educational institutions and then the realities of a modern career. Sure, learning the foundations is important, but the reality is that in most industries, your ability to execute and get results matters a lot more than if you can memorize the textbook. But the problem is most of this kind of tactical everyday knowledge isn't that well documented. And if it is, it's spread across multiple people's personal blogs, half-baked YouTube videos, and the comments of niche forums. So the question then becomes, how do you learn these new undocumented skills? One solution that's growing in popularity is known as cohort-based courses. And I'm joined today by a pioneer of cohort-based courses to help us understand how we can learn, but also where the opportunity is to teach others. She previously co-founded the Alt MBA and is now building Maven, a platform for hosting cohort-based courses. I'm excited to welcome Wes Kao to Top of Mind. Welcome, Wes. Hey, Stuart. Great to be here. I'm really excited to chat about this because I took Alt MBA a number of years ago, and it was really formidable, both because it introduced me to the idea of learning from strangers, but also interacting with uh, people online in Zoom rooms way before we became slaves to Zoom almost. <laughs> and then also the idea of like publishing content and creating and that being the outcome of education, not just memorization. So really excited to get, dive into specifically how we go about building a course because there's online courses out there. Some of them are amazing and some of them are not great, but you've seen your fair share of them as you founded Maven. And so we're going to dive into your canvas that you've built to understand what you need to consider before you even dive into starting your course. So firstly, I kind of want to talk about maybe who you believe should be creating a cohort-based courses and what the kind of average, the most common type of teacher you see. Yeah. So in terms of who should create a cohort-based course, it's really anyone with credible expertise to share. So if you're a subject matter expert, if you're an operator who knows your stuff and people are constantly asking you questions about a certain set of problems that they want you to help solve, that's all a good sign that you might have a course in you. The course creators that I'm really excited about are what I call non-traditional teachers. So these are digitally native professors who don't necessarily have formal training in education. They're not necessarily professors or lecturers in higher, higher education, but they're people with 
a lot of knowledge being an operator, being in industry, being in the field. There are people like Legion, who was uh, a venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz and now runs her own firm. She coined the term passion economy. And if you're a founder in the creator economy or you're a, a VC who wants to invest in creator economy companies and learn more about trends happening in that space, who better to learn from than Lee? And you know, another example is Lenny Rachitsky. So Lenny was an early product manager at Airbnb and he teaches a Maven course on product management. So if you're given the choice between taking a course from someone who was a hands-on product manager themselves and rose up through the ranks versus a professor who hasn't been in industry for a while and is teaching more about the, the theory and the, the abstract high-level form of, of product management, we want to create more hands-on opportunities to learn from people like Lenny, basically. So if you're someone who has a lot of expertise and you're already creating content, you're already, you know, you have a podcast, a newsletter, you're tweeting a ton, you might be working on a book. A lot of creators fall in this bucket. I think thinking about whether courses are right for you is totally fair game. I love how you put it there too. It's not about being a formal teacher. It's literally, if you have a body of knowledge and people are interested in it, or people are asking you to share it, that perfect that you're, you're all of a sudden in a position where teaching makes a lot of sense and you don't need to go through the, the criteria of becoming a university professor or anything like that. Yep, exactly. And so the other benefit of it being kind of open-ended in this way is you don't need to follow any set curriculum that your school might require or any recommended readings or anything like that, which is nice. But as we know, if you open up and have no constraints, all of a sudden it becomes nearly impossible to actually build a thing that people want because there's so many avenues to explore. And so you've done a really good job of helping people understand what constraints exist as you design your course, because it seems like a very huge mountain to climb. And so now we're going to dive into sort of these 12 levers that you've identified and they, they break down in a really effective way of three parts that every instructor or teacher is going to have to think about as they design their course. So the first part is student transformation. So actually what is your, what are your students going to get from this experience? Part two then is the assets and constraints that you're going to apply on yourself and on you, whoever you need to help and your content and the students themselves. And then lastly is the actual teaching itself and teaching from first principles and using analogies. So let's start with part one, which is student transformation. So you suggest starting with defining that transformation that you want your students to have before doing anything else. Why do you recommend starting with transformation? Starting with student transformation is super important because this is the lens that your prospective students are going to view you and your course through. So they are going to be asking themselves, what will I gain from taking this course? What will I learn? How is this going to solve my problems? So you really want to focus on student transformation because it kind of refocuses and resend you as a creator to focus purely on your student. So if the transformation that you're offering is, let's say the distance between X and Y. So X is where your student is now, Y is where they want to be. If that's a small transformation, that's great. If it's a big transformation, that's even better. So people want to pay for that transformation. And the, the bigger the transformation you give can give them, the more that they're going to feel like uh, 
Like they, they came in as one person and left as a much better version of themselves. So transformation, it, it doesn't need to be something that's, that's gargantuan though, you know, even incremental transformation, small improvements that still counts. So for example, I took a NAS Academy course a couple of weeks ago and it was just four hours long core based course one day. And it was about talking about difficult topics on YouTube and social media. So how do you create videos about topics that can be kind of tricky to navigate? And I went into it not knowing anything about script writing and, and YouTube video creation and editing and, you know, figuring out storylines. So for me, even learning uh, the basics from a four hour course, I felt transformed by the end of that. So it doesn't have to be this night and day thing, as long as you are moving your student closer to where they want to go. And when I looked at the course and, and signed up for it, I was curious about, you know, what are some of the foundational principles of talking about tricky topics in public spaces. And I felt like by the end of that, I, I learned those things. So for me, that transformation was met. So starting a student transformation um, is a really good way to, to focus your topic, your curriculum, focus how you want to think about your course strategy. And so that, the next thing we want to think about then is what the actual outcome looks like for the student. So there's the transformation they go through, but then you've also defined the the difference between a binary student outcome and then a spectrum outcome. Can you explain what that means? Yes. So a binary outcome is a yes or no. You either did it or you didn't. So one good example of a binary student outcome is if you say by the end of this three-week course, a uh, script writing, screenwriting course, you're going to have a fully written script. You're going to come in without one and you're going to end with one. So that's the example of something binary because at the end you either have a script or you don't. Whereas that same topic, screenwriting and you know creating a script for let's say TV or, or movie script, an example of a spectrum type transformation and outcome would be you will improve your script or you'll get started with a draft of a script, right? So there it's it's a bit more of a spectrum in that someone might come in with an existing script and you're moving them closer to their goal, a little bit to the right, you know, between X and Y, but it's not something as, as black and white as you either have it or you don't. Mm. So with most courses, a spectrum outcome makes sense because your students basically want to get better at their craft, whether it's product management or screenwriting or learning about crypto, as long as you're moving them to the right from X closer to Y, that's usually enough. Is there any good way that you found for for knowing beforehand whether your students would prefer a binary or a spectrum outcome? Yeah, that's a good question. I think thinking about who your target student is and their their level of expertise as they come in. So for someone who, let's say, let's say the screenwriting example. So if someone is an experienced screenwriter, they've been in the industry, they're taking a course to level up their skills and, and really sharpen to get from 96th percentile to you know the 98th percentile, then um, then having a binary spectrum where you or a binary um, outcome where you say, all right, you know, all the students in this course have already written multiple scripts before. So in this you know one month course, you're gonna draft a script from scratch. We're gonna do it all together. And and that might make sense because four weeks to do a whole script I'm guessing it's pretty tight. I haven't, you know, been a screenwriter before, <laughs> but that seems pretty tight. But if someone's 
experienced, then they know the ropes already and you can focus in on um, specific areas, right? So like that might make more sense for a student that's more advanced. But that same promise is probably too big of a transformation for someone who's a novice, someone like me who's never written, you know, a movie script or, or TV pilot script. So you might not want to make the promise. On the other hand, if let's say you really wanted to do a binary outcome for a beginner, what you could say is by the end of this one month course, you're going to have an initial draft written. So you come in with nothing, but at the end, you'll have a draft of one episode of your show, right? So that's, that's an example where, you know, you're still leaving with something really tangible mm. um, and students have produced something that they didn't have before they started, but it's, it's the scope of it is narrowed so that it makes sense for someone who is a beginner. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that was, that's the balance of, of scope, but then also deliverables because the student experience and the student transformation really makes up a bulk of the uh, things you need to think through as the teacher. The, the way we're thinking about this and the way we're having this conversation is really based on your course mechanics canvas, which is something that you wrote um, and is available on your blog. And you've identified 12 levers that you can all, that you can adjust to make the student experience and your own experience as a teacher different. And what we just talked about, the student transformation makes up seven of the 12. So over 50% of the questions you need to answer for yourself and your students take place around, okay, what experience, what do they think they're going to get when they come in here and what are they going to leave with as they leave? And so do you recommend people spend a lot of time on, we don't, we won't have time to go through all seven of those levers. You can, you can read that on Wes's blog, but would you recommend that the student transformation be really methodically thought out before pursuing on to part two of designing your course? Yeah, you definitely want to be methodical about it. It doesn't mean though, that you need to have everything figured out before you move into step two. Okay. So I, I would recommend even doing the two potentially in tandem. So thinking about what is that student transformation that, that you want to give to your students and then a fast follow on thinking about your own assets and constraints, and then you can bounce between the two. So as you are thinking about and answering one, you're going to narrow down the options for the other. And then you kind of bounce back and forth, just putting feelers out there for what is exciting for you as a course creator. And then what's going to be exciting for your students. And the reason I say that you can go back and forth is because you're really trying to find the overlap. If you think about a Venn diagram with two circles, one is the value you're going to give to your students. The other is what would be fun and worth doing for you as a creator. And you want to find that overlap. So part one really covers looking externally with what does the market want? What do students want? What are expensive, hairy, urgent problems that people want solved that you could teach a course on, right? So it's kind of external. And then looking inwards for part two with what are the assets and constraints that I'm coming to the table with? What would make this rewarding for me? What are some of my goals and dreams in creating a course? Uh, and the reason that that second part is important is because you don't want to sign up for something that you are um, not going to have fun doing and then drop, you know, halfway through, right? When times get hard and, you know, and, and creating a course should be fun and rewarding, right? So yeah. you want to, you want to build something that you're going to enjoy building and you have so much creative control that there are so many ways to build something that would be the ideal relationship you want with your students and the ideal way that you want this course to fit into your creator portfolio of all the other things you might be doing. 
That's a great way of looking at it. So now we're now we're moving on to part two, which is where you're looking inwardly and you're assessing the constraints that you want to put on yourself and what assets you have so that it's enjoyable for you because you're the one who's putting this on yourself to create a course. What are some assets that that you see being very valuable for a teacher to have as they build a course-based cohort-based course? Yeah. So looking at your assets and constraints is basically taking stock of what you are starting with what your resources are that you can work with to build this course. So assets are anything that you can use to your advantage. It could be your prior experience working in the field and all the knowledge and insight that you have. It could be your spiky points of view that you think differently than everyone else in the industry. It could be your audience size that you've, you know, in the past couple of years spent building up an audience and that these people trust you and listen to you and already love your content. It could be a newsletter that you've been writing for a while. It could be your network of professionals in the industry that that believe in you, right? So your assets can be a lot of these things. It can be cash, right? It can be budget that you can spend on hiring people, on investing in your course. It can be time. So time is absolutely an asset. If you are time constrained, that's totally different than if you have a lot of time and energy to invest in something. So assets are basically anything that, that is go- you have going for you. Your sparkling personality, your charisma, your humor, like that all counts too. Okay, so those are assets. Constraints are things that you need to work around. So some people ask, well, what's the difference between a problem and a constraint? So a problem is something that you are actively trying to solve and that you believe is solvable. Whereas the constraint is a problem that you are no longer trying to solve, but you are more acting as, as, as if it's, a, it's an assumption that you're working around, basically. So, so thinking about your constraints is really important because that will help you navigate the boundaries of, of your ideas, essentially. So some constraints, for example, might be, I'm not particularly tech savvy. So in you know messing around in Photoshop or iMovie, that you know takes... I think it takes way too long, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a constraint where you might say, I'm going to become much more technically savvy and and get better at Photoshop and Illustrator, et cetera. Um, That's great. If you don't plan on really improving in that area and don't don't have any desire to, just admit it to yourself and say, you know what? That's a constraint. Awesome. Great. You can still have an amazing course and not, not try to tout production value as the main selling point in your course, for example, right? So- I think the production value element is a good example of, of assets and constraints. There might be someone else who is great at tinkering with video editing, loves learning new technology, loves you know working with design and visuals. Awesome. In that case, that person has technical skills as part of their assets. And they might want to say, my course and my landing pages and my website, my content materials look sleek and they look better than most other people's. And that's, that's awesome. So the reason why thinking about assets and constraints is important is because there's so many ways to create a compelling course that you do not need to assume that, oh, it has to look this way, or I suck at this thing and I have to force myself to do it this way. And I'm going to be miserable doing it this way. Not at all. If you love live lecturing and interacting with students, awesome. Do more of that in your course. If you aren't that comfortable live lecturing, you can have coaches, for example, you can have guest lecturers, you can have co-lecturers, right? There's just so many different ways that you can combine the different elements of a core-based course 
that starting with the student transformation and then acetylene constraints lets you basically look at those levers and realize that, you know, this is a lever that really want to be, you know, push that, push that nozzle, the, the dial over to the right or to the left. I want more of this, less of that. It helps you organize uh, and come to terms with what would you truly be excited to build? It's almost one of those situations where bugs become features, like just, you don't know how to use Photoshop. Therefore your, your slides are going to be really funny because they'll be like, not, not well edited, but that's like a, a fun thing that you can push on. Yeah, that as could you be a style material. You make it intentional. Exactly. I think another great example of turning bugs into features is let's say your, your course has a small group of students. So you have only 15 to 20 students. So instead of saying, oh, like this sucks. My course is so small. I feel so self-conscious about it. You can turn a bug into a feature and say, this is a more intimate group. And if you participate in this course, you really get to know everyone else who's in that course. And that's a huge selling point. There are a lot of people who don't want to be just one person in a sea of faces, that they would prefer something that is smaller and, uh, and gives them a chance to kind of get to know everyone, right? And then the opposite is also true. So if, you're, if your course has 100 students, 150, 200 students, that's great too. You can turn a bug into a feature. In that situation, you would play up that with more students in the course, there's more chances to find people that you hit it off with. There's more opportunities to network and get exposure to people that you wouldn't have met otherwise. There's more exposure to a, a wide breadth of ideas and how people you know, might approach problems and, and think differently than you do. So in, in whatever situation that you're in as a course creator, I really recommend that you turn the bug into a feature and think about why might someone love this? Why might someone actually prefer this over the opposite situation? Right. Continuing to pull on the thread of the size of your course, one thing that I've seen time and time come up again, as people are thinking through, okay, once I've got the content built, how do I actually get people to sign up? And the size of your audience or the people you're able to sell your course to becomes a really big barrier that I think a lot of people might put in their own head. And they say, uh, I don't have an audience. I don't have a big Twitter following, or I don't have a big email list. How am I supposed to get people to sign up? Do you, do you need a big audience in order to put on a successful course? That's a great question. And it definitely comes up with a lot of first-time course creators. I would say that having an audience of some sort definitely helps. And the idea there is that these are people who you have an existing relationship with because they already follow your work. They've already been reading, let's say your newsletter or your blog. They believe you have good ideas or they've worked with you in the past, right? So it's all more social proof for, for, for you and your ability to deliver. So the other thing that I will say though, is that not having an audience doesn't mean that you shouldn't do a course though or that you're immediately you know, out of the running. So there are plenty of small course creators who don't have a very big online presence who tap into other ways to fill seats in their course. And getting creative about that is really important. So for example, Shivani Berry is one of the Maven instructors who has a, a program that's geared towards women in tech, teaching them management leadership skills. And Shivani started her course, it's called Ascend, last year. Her first cohort had, I think, 15 to 20 students. Her second cohort, a couple months later, had uh, 40 to 50. Her next cohort had 75 to 80. 
And then her upcoming cohort has about a hundred. And she started with no online presence. I think like 50, you know, Twitter followers, no email list because up until she started her core based course, she was an in-house operator. She worked at, I think, PayPal as a product manager. So most of her focus wasn't necessarily building her, her personal credibility, her personal brand. It was, you know, working a, a, a full-time job. Being good at the um, work. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and that's a, a huge endeavor. And so there's a lot of people who are in, in her shoes who are subject matter experts and operators who are now thinking, hey, I, I want to do a course. Where, you know, how can I start if I don't have that audience? And the way that Shivani did it was really creative and really resourceful. She started first realizing that she needed to build her own audience too. So she started, she started uh, tweeting more. She started writing a newsletter. She started posting on LinkedIn. And it's kind of a, a, a gradual um, process. And, you know, what I like telling people who have a smaller audience is that it's when you look at someone with a big audience, you might think there's something magical or special about them. And it's not true. It's basically that they started working on this before you did. They just started sooner, whether it was, you know, and it could have been years sooner, right? They just put a lot more effort into it than you have. And if you put in that effort, you would probably get there too. So don't feel bad that like there's something like categorically different about them. It's just that you personally haven't spent that effort. So one is to put in the effort to build your audience. The second thing that Shivani did though, was she tapped into people with existing audiences. So she would have, you know, bi-weekly fireside chats with women in tech. She had one with Julie Zuo, who uh, was VP of design at Facebook, one of the, the, you know, early employees at Facebook. She had one with, I think, the CEO of Intercom. So powerful women in tech, she would interview them, do fireside chats. These women would then share in their social networks that, hey, I'm doing this fireside chat with Shivani Beery from the Ascent course, right? So tapping into people who have existing audience, reaching out to communities that would be glad to hear about your course. So she posts pretty regularly in different women in tech communities, you know, women in product management, women in Silicon Valley, women in startups. So these are all, these are all communities that already exist where there are people already gathering and she shows up and says, Hey, can I do a free webinar teaching, teaching women about imposter syndrome or teaching women about advocating for yourself or teaching, teaching you about working with dominant personalities, difficult personalities. Right. And so these communities gain something. They learn from what Shivani is teaching. And then in the course of that 45 minute presentation, they realize that she really knows what she's talking about. And meanwhile, she's giving examples of how other students in her course have leveled up and have taken the advice that they've learned and implemented it. And so all of a sudden there's this, there's this credibility that the audience viscerally feels and is able to experience. Right. So there's so many different ways that if you don't have your own audience, that you can still go out there and show up in existing communities where people are already talking about the topics that you're, you're teaching, and they would be glad to know that you exist and that your course exists. And it becomes a ladder as well. Like you just start on step one and you, but by having been on step one, step two becomes visible. It might not make sense at the time, but once you get going, the the next thing happens and it's uh it's pretty magical when that works. Yeah. And going back to Shivani as an example, I mentioned a couple big names of, of people that she interviewed for Fireside Chats, but when she first started, it was smaller, lesser known 
people that she was interviewing. Yeah. So she did exactly what you said. She kind of, it snowballed and, and she worked her way up the ladder until she was able to get these really big names with bigger audiences for her fireside chats. Amazing. Before we move on to part three, which is the kind of actual content of the course, I kind of want to preface something that you talked about where your course can be an extension of however you are as a teacher, and it can kind of complement maybe your content in a different way than, than the way you actually present it. So there are a few types of courses that you've kind of identified, and there's five of them that I want to kind of bring up. There's intense courses, there's networking courses, experiential, accountability or, more, or motivation, and short courses. And so you've kind of given a few examples. You mentioned that four-hour example. So a course can be super short and very well-defined. But then you can have these very longer ones where it's a lot about accountability and motivation where you actually pair people off and they go execute together. Is, do you have anything to say about kind of how to pick um, a course style that suits your personality or is that more about the students? Yeah, it's definitely about both what your target student would find valuable and fun to participate in and then what you would find fun to build and to teach. So I think one exercise that, that we have instructors do in the course that I teach, the Maven Course Accelerator, where I teach you everything you need to know about building a core-based course. One of the exercises that, that is a fan favorite among our instructors is trying out each of these five. So actually pretending if I had a really intense course, what would that look like? And then doing the thought experiment for five minutes, just thinking about okay, here's what it would look like. Here's what I would have to do. Here's what the experience would be for students here. You know, if I modeled, modeled it after all MBA or Lambda school, which are two examples of intense courses, here's what it would look like. And then do it with the next type of course, a networking type course, more like on deck where it's a fellowship. There's a lot of events. It's choose your own adventure. Everything is optional. So there's not very many mandatory, you know, you have to be here at a certain time. You kind of get to pick the things you want to attend and craft your own experience. So spend a couple minutes thinking intensely about, okay, if my course were on deck style and it was all guest lectures and I didn't teach anything, what would that look like? Who would I have as guest lecturers? What would they teach? How would I frame this with students, right? And then move on to the next one. If my course were experiential, if it were a lot about, about thinking through and having a forum to, to talk to other people about different ideas. So Susie Batiz's course, Alive OS, um, is an eight-week course that I put in the experiential bucket. I love her course. It's, there's no projects. There were no breakouts, no homework. It was one lecture from Susie per week. And then one group session where you talk to, you're paired in, you know, groups of seven to 10 people with a coach. And you basically reflected on what Susie's lecture was about and what your, what, what the, the theme of that week was about. And actually there was, there was light homework. There was light homework in that, you know, there was a, a Google doc that had certain questions and you would answer them. It wasn't super, super intense though, but that course was all about overcoming limiting beliefs and creating the life that you want to live figuring out how to set your boundaries. So for a topic like that, an experiential format worked really well because a lot of the students wanted to kind of reflect out loud with other people and hear other people's experiences. So if you were doing an experiential course, what would that look like? 
and then think about that, right? And then you move on to the accountability and motivation course or a short course. So by thinking through and giving yourself permission to pretend that your course was super long or pretend that it was super short or pretend that there were a lot of coaches or pretend that there were no coaches, you give yourself more opportunity to realize what you get excited about. If, for example, when you hear many coaches, you break out in hives and start worrying about managing people and how, how frustrating that's going to be. And it's just a mess. You don't really want to deal with that. And then when you think about it just being you, your relationship with your students, kind of you kind of overseeing everything and knowing everything that's going on, and you get really excited about that, that's telling you something. That's a clue and a signal that you should not ignore. You should absolutely pay attention to what you are excited about and what you think your students will get excited about. And doing this exercise really helps. I call these, these types of exercises rubber band exercises, where you basically stretch like a rubber band, knowing that when you let go of the rubber band, it snaps back. And it might, it might be a little bit looser. And that's, that's really what we, what we want course graders to be, right? It's like, we're going to stretch you to the extreme to, to give you these different scenarios to think through, knowing that when we release, you'll be you have more inspiration and you're, you're going to choose something that's still reasonable. It's not going to be all the way to the extreme of, you know, a hundred coaches or none. You might end up with three coaches, but at least you were able to put yourself in the shoes of some more extreme situations that help you see what you're excited about and what you're not excited about. I love that elastic band analogy. And that ties perfectly to part three, which is where we actually start looking at analogies and the first principles of your course. So what are the first principles of building a course? Yeah. So the first principles would be the 12 levers. So when I talk about first principles versus analogies, what I mean is that as a course creator, you want to understand the first principles so that you know what your building blocks are. And you also want to know what you also want to learn by analogy so that you have examples that you can look to for inspiration of how other people have done something. So the reason that I bring this up is because many first-time course creators learn 100% by analogy only. So they see David Perel from Rite of Passage does a six-week course. I need to do a six-week course, right? Or Alt-MBA is four weeks and it's super intense. Everything is mandatory. There's a ton of coaches. I need to do that. So when you when you only learn from analogy, you get boxed in to certain assumptions that you don't even know that you're making. And you get boxed in with certain constraints that certain constraints, certain constraints and assets that you might not necessarily have. So the all-time BA works for, for a couple reasons. And if you don't have the same assets and constraints, you won't, might not be able to replicate that. So a lot of people, for example, will say, well, all-time BA. Seth Godin never personally teaches. And so my course, I want it to be just like that. So that might work for you, but it is probably going to be harder than you think because the reason that, that Seth was able to never appear is because he had a very strong body of content and frameworks and principles that he and I built into this course, into the All-MBA. And then we spent an enormous amount of effort bringing on amazing coaches who could help teach these concepts, who could help, who could help um, facilitate conversations, who could help connect students with each other. 
And we spent a lot of time designing projects that were standalone so that students could feel the lesson as opposed to Seth, you know, telling you the lesson in a lecture. Mm -hmm. So if you're not prepared to do those other things, to have other staff members, let's say, be able to help facilitate conversations, or if you don't want to put a lot of effort into designing great projects that um, don't need much voiceover for your students to be able to learn from, then you shouldn't go this path. But you wouldn't even know that unless you, if you were only learning by analogy. Right. So the first principles is that's where the 12 leapers come in is understanding here are all the moving parts that are involved in the course building process. Here's how they influence each other. Here's how you can look at them as a system. So when certain levers move, they impact other levers, their second order effects. And once you start seeing those levers, you get a better idea of what really works for you and for your situation. And I think we've kind of, as we discussed this throughout the whole thing, we start seeing that like, it's all right to borrow from other course creators. In fact, you should, because that, that's the way you stretch your rubber band and start understanding what else is going on out there, but always go back to first principles of, okay, but this is my course. It needs to fit into my constraints. It needs to leverage my assets exactly. and my students need to get, get the experience that I promised them. So you have to always roll back to the students and yourself before getting crazy about it. So I love mm -hmm. that way of thinking about it so that there's a lot of moving pieces, but there's only 12 that you need to worry about and everything else will kind of fall in. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Wes, is there anything else that you want um, to kind of uh, bring up before we wrap this up? Because there's a lot here, but if there's any particular spot that uh, someone listening wants to check out, the the course mechanics canvas breaks down every single one of these 12 things that you need to consider so that you have a course market fit and kind of set yourself up for success moving forward. Yeah. I think one thing that I'll, I'll end on is you don't need to have everything figured out before you get started. One thing that I see a lot of is analysis paralysis and perfectionism blocking first-time course creators from launching their course. So all the stuff that Stuart and I are talking about here, the course mechanics canvas, the levers, the all these examples that you can look at, these are all meant to inspire you and get you started as, as a creator. You don't have to have everything figured out from day one. It's an evolving process. And even the Maven course accelerator that's coming up, it's gonna be our fourth time teaching it. So the three times that I've taught it in previous months, we changed a bunch of stuff from one session to another. Originally, it was a one-week course that I, that I ran with uh, a group of alpha testers, five people. The next time I ran it was 10 students in that course, and I expanded it into six weeks. And the next time, kept it at six weeks, but grew it to 85 students. And then this upcoming cohort, it's going to be shortened again to three weeks, and it's going to have over 100 students. So both the student count and the length of the course and the format, we evolved as we went because we, we, we understood and, and got more data points into what students um, found compelling, what was most useful, what was not as useful. So we trimmed the stuff that wasn't as useful, doubled down on the stuff that was, took students' feedback. So that iterative process and iterative mindset is absolutely the mindset that you should, you should go into course building with. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off of creators from thinking that, you know, I have to have this all perfect starting from day one because no one does. Yeah. That's really a, that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Even, even the, the inventors 
of core based courses are still trying to figure out how to do it right. So, but having that thing in the, in the sand and having experimented with it is the best way to get started. Yep. Thank you so much, Wes. Would, would, would people checking out the Maven course accelerator be the best place if, if they're interested in learning more about course building? Yeah. So if you go to maven.com and scroll to the middle of the page, that's where we're accepting applications for the upcoming September cohort. Awesome. Thank you so much, Wes. If, if, if you don't follow Wes on Twitter yet either, that's the best place to, to see her writing. And she always has these awesome insights that she usually teases on Twitter. And then, then you go and check out her blog and realize that she's been thinking about this for 10 years and it's really distilled into these awesome blog posts. So definitely check out Wes's work. Thank you so much for taking the time, Wes. This has been super useful. Thanks, Stuart.